This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. I cannot believe that each succeeding week this year seems to get more and more tempestuous. There is so much news this week that I won't even come close to discussing it all, but I'll try, including item number one. Believe it or not, the Line 5 pipeline under the Straits of Mackinac is back in the news again after an Ingham County Circuit judge issued a temporary restraining order shutting it down after part of the line was damaged in a still undisclosed way last week. The judge, John Jamo, said Enbridge Energy must halt all transport operations through Line 5 at least until there is a hearing this coming Tuesday, June 30th, where Enbridge can explain itself. It had appeared that all systems were go for Enbridge to build a new tunnel under the straits to house Line 5 that would take years to finish. But now that's in question again. Remember, Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Attorney General Dana Nessel have both said they would prefer to shut down Line 5 permanently. Up to this point, it appeared that they had been frustrated in that ambition. But now, who knows? Item number two, a spate of polls came out in the past week that show total conflict. A couple of them have Democrat Joe Biden walloping Republican President Donald Trump by double digits, sizable double digits, while two other surveys showed the race too close to call, a one-point and a two-point edge for Biden, which was within the margin of error. The two surveys showing Biden with a big lead were taken in mid-June by Lansing-based Epic MRA, which had the Democrat ahead in Michigan by 16 points, and an outfit called TIPP, which had had him ahead by 13%. But the only pollster who correctly called Michigan for Trump in 2016, Trafalgar, said Trump and Biden are virtually deadlocked at about 45 or 46 percent. Another survey by CNBC had Biden ahead by only 2 percent. I guess all Donald Trump needs now is a poll showing him ahead of Biden by double digits. But something tells me that will never happen. I think Trump will consider himself lucky to emerge with a narrow win in November as he did four years ago. Item number three, remember those two bills in the Michigan legislature to help the beleaguered hospitality industry that were discussed by a couple of our guests in the past few weeks? Well, they passed this week and are on their way to Governor Whitmer for her signature. One measure would create drinking districts in municipal downtown areas where patrons could buy sealed containers of alcohol from restaurants as well as food and take it out to be consumed in the streets in a confined area. Another bill would allow cocktails to go to be purchased from restaurants by diners and drinkers, either in small drinkable quantities, perhaps in one of the social districts, or taken home, perhaps in bulk and drunk on one's own personal property. 
This may sound like a wild idea, but these measures were being crafted and discussed even before the coronavirus crisis, and many other states have legalized them already. But would these bills have become law if not for COVID-19 and the sympathy generated for Michigan's hospitality industry because of the shutdown orders of Governor Whitmer that has cost them hundreds of millions of dollars in lost business over the past three months. Item number four, some new COVID-19 statistics came out of Michigan this week, and they are not headed in the right direction. Michigan's new COVID-19 cases swole to or swelled. Can you say swole? I'm not sure. 323 on one date this week, marking its highest number in 23 days. In the seven days prior, the average number of new cases was at 206, according to numbers supplied by the Department of Health and Human Services. The number of new deaths remained low, however, at only four. The total number of COVID-19 cases in Michigan to this point is nearly 62,000. The total number of deaths is nearly 5,900. But remember that this can also be because of economic calamity. Lives can be lost. The lost economic output in Michigan is estimated to have cost 45,000 years of life for Michiganders at least. This comes from the stresses of unemployment and providing basic needs increase, the incidence of suicide, alcohol, or drug abuse, and stress-induced illnesses. These effects are particularly severe on the lower-income populace as they are more likely to lose their jobs and mortality rates are much higher for low-income individuals. People die at much higher rates from nephritis, flu and pneumonia, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, stroke, chronic lower respiratory infections, cancer, heart disease, and mental illness. Item number five, Michigan's indoor gyms will remain closed after a three-judge U.S. Sixth Appeals Panel of Judges granted Governor Whitmer's request to halt a lower court's ruling that allow the businesses to reopen on Thursday of this past week. The judges said they, quote, sympathize deeply with the business owners and their patrons, but crises like COVID-19 call for quick and decisive measures to save lives. Those measures can have extreme costs, costs that often are not borne evenly, unquote, so the opinion read. And I'm quoting again, the decision to impose those costs rests with the political branches of government, in this case, Governor Whitmer. On Friday, U.S. District Judge Paul Maloney had sided with the gyms and fitness centers, many of which, by the way, claim they're going to have to permanently close because of the action this week by preventing the state from enforcing Whitmer's executive order. So the appeals panel overturned Maloney, but they recognized his frustration at the justification for the executive actions. 
Now, that is it as far as a laundry list of items this week, and there were many more I could name, but I'll just mention two other tidbits. This week, Governor Whitmer appointed the son of her favorite former governor, William G. Milliken, the late William G. Milliken, who died at the age of 97 last year, she appointed William Milliken Jr. to the Mackinac Bridge Authority. And also I should note that former state Senate minority leader Art Miller, a Democrat from Warren, died this week at the age of 73. He served a long time in the legislature. He was well-liked, well-respected, and we're going to miss him. Uh, I've got some other business today that we're going to discuss, uh, but it's going to be a little bit different, and we're going to inject some humor as well. Uh, We're also going to talk, we hope, about the 50th anniversary of the Kent State tragic shootings of 1968. Uh, It was, excuse me, of 1970. So that was half a century ago. The anniversary date was actually two months ago. Uh, We're a little late, but we hope to catch up. And then we're going to talk to a congressional candidate in a very important district that is open. So stay tuned, and I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are very fortunate to have with us a prominent author and journalist uh, based in suburban Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Hal Markovitz. Hal, thanks for being our guest. My pleasure. Well, look, Hal, you have written uh, a lot of really good stuff, a lot of it very funny, um, and you got a few tales to tell. So I'm going to just start off asking you this question. Who was Betsy Donahue, and what role did she play in construction of the White House? Okay, so this goes back to, of course, the 1790s. And the White House was uh, designed by an architect named James Hoban. He had won a competition and, and won the contract. So Hoban... Uh, you know, designs the a White House, and he's going to oversee the construction. And he decides he wants to be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So he has a cabin constructed on the uh, grounds of the White House. So he can move. He moves into the cabin, and he's living there during the construction of the White House. And this goes on for several months. And eventually, uh, Hoban decides that the project is moving along uh, very well. He doesn't have to be living there. He can move back home and just show up during the day and keep an eye on things. So he moves out of the cabin, and he leases the cabin to a carpenter named Donahue and his wife, Betsy. So the Donahues move in. And shortly after the Donahues uh, started living in that cabin, it became uh, evident to uh, authorities that Betsy Donahue was running a brothel out of the cabin. (laughs) So the... 
first unofficial use of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue was as a uh, as a brothel. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Somehow, I think that's been suppressed by historians over the years. But you have brought it to light. Thank you for that one. Now, let me ask you another question. Can you talk about some of the unusual ways the White House bunker has been employed over the years, including its use to screen a pornographic movie during the Nixon administration? That's right. Um, The bunker, which was in the news a couple weeks ago when President Trump kind of found his way down there during those demonstrations. So the bunker has been around uh, since World War II, and the uh, military was very concerned that the White House would be a target for uh, enemy saboteurs, bombers, whatever. So they uh, built a, um, a bomb shelter, if you will, a bunker under the White House uh, for President Roosevelt, who never liked going down there. And in fact, after he'd been down there once or twice, uh, when the military told him that uh, they were feared for his safety. Instead of going out of the bunker, he went out to the countryside to a place he called Shangri-La. It was a little, um, you know, uh, hideaway. And it turned out to be Camp David is what it turned into. Right. So uh, Roosevelt never liked spending time down there, and, and none of the other presidents did either. And really the only time it was ever really used for its purpose was during, of course, the terrorist attacks of 2001. Uh, when uh, Cheney, uh, Vice President Cheney and, and George Bush spent some time down there. Uh, back, though, before that, in 1971, I believe, uh, Nixon's daughter, Tricia Nixon, uh, married Edward Cox in a White House Rose Garden ceremony. It was a beautiful ceremony and had all the trappings of, of just a, a wonderful wedding. Unfortunately, or not unfortunately, but it so happened that a maker of a pornographic uh, movies uh, decided to spoof the Nixon-Cox wedding by producing a pornographic movie depicting the wedding. And uh, (laughs) the actors he used were, uh, as they say now, transgender. So he... They had this movie uh, starring these transgender actors uh, spoofing the um, uh, Nixon-Cox wedding. So H.R. Haldeman, who is Nixon's chief of staff, hears about this. And I don't know how he happened to hear about a pornographic movie uh, starring transgender actors, but he did, and he was livid. And he wanted to get this movie pulled out of uh, distribution, however porno movies were distributed in those days. And he calls a meeting and he tells uh, the White House staff that they have to find a way to kill this movie. So they send one of the uh, staff members out to get a copy of this film. And can you imagine a member of the White House staff uh, walking into an adult bookstore and buying a pornographic movie? But I guess he did. And they retreat down to the White House bunker watch this movie. So Nixon's staff is down in the White House bunker, and they watch this uh, pornographic movie uh, spoofing the, uh, the the wedding of his daughter. And uh, one of the staff members who went down there was John Dean, who was the White House counsel. Right. And he watched the movie, 
then at the end of the film, he he acknowledged it was certainly in poor taste, but it's protected by the First Amendment, and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's what happened. So that's how a pornographic movie came to be screened in the White House bunker. That's unbelievable. Here's another question. Which president discovered that somebody had stolen his underwear? That was uh, James Madison, and it occurred during the uh, War of 1812. This wasn't Betsy Donahue, was it? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know what happened to her. She was long gone by then. Okay. So what happened is the um, uh, British invaded Washington during the war, uh, British sailors, and the uh, city was evacuated, and the president and and his family had to leave the White House. So the British sailors, there's about 150 of them, they show up at the White House, and uh, they decide to uh, set fire to it, which they did. But before they did that, they took themselves on a tour of the White House, and some of them found their way into the president's uh, living uh, space, his bedroom, and they found his underwear, and they stole it. I guess those... <laughs> um, uh, voyages across the Atlantic Ocean, you know, there's no place to do your laundry. <laughs> Clean underwear was pretty much in demand in those days. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Well, you know, one of my favorite photographs of all time, I don't know about you, was Elvis Presley and Richard Nixon. I mean, the most unlikely combination you could imagine. And Elvis, of course, visited Richard Nixon in the White House. That's where the photo was taken. And I think he gave the president a gift, didn't he? What was it? Yes, that happened. And uh, that photo you referenced, that is the that occurred during the meeting. And, you know, Elvis has one of his purple jumpsuits on. And <laughs> that is the number one selling souvenir at the Nixon Library. I understand <laughs> that photo. So what happened is that Elvis is, is down there in Memphis, and he's a police buff. He collects badges and belt buckles and all sort of police paraphernalia. And he has his eye on a badge for the Drug Enforcement Administration. He wants a DEA badge. But he finds out that the only way to get a DEA badge is to join the DEA. And, you know, he's not going to do that. But he gets this idea that if he gets Nixon to deputize him as a member of the Drug Enforcement Administration, he'll get his badge. So he calls his guys together. And he tells them, we're going to fly up to Washington today. We're going to go right to, the, right to the White House. And President Nixon is going to deputize me into the DEA. Wow. So they all pile no limo, and they go up to the Memphis airport, and they fly right up to Washington. And they hire a car, and they get, drive to the White House. And they go, Nixon, or, I'm sorry, Elvis gets out of the car, and he goes right up to the guard. And he tells them what he's there for. So the guard calls in the White House, and he tells them that Elvis is there to get deputized in his DEA, and they have no idea what's going on. So they quickly call a meeting, and they chew this over, and they decide, hey, let's Hal, do this. I, Hal, I hate to tell you, we're out of time, but okay. just to cut to the bottom line, did Nixon deputize him or not? Nixon deputized him, and Elvis brought a gift to the White House to give to Nixon, and it turned out to be a gun. <laughs> Listen, honestly, I could go on and on. You could go on and on. Thank you so much, Hal Markovitz. A delightful teller of tales about the White House. And we'll have you back on another date, okay? All right. And, uh, 
you know, keep an eye out for my book, Painting the White House, at paintingthewhitehouse.com. Thank you so much, Hal Markovitz. Be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we're going to flip the script and get serious here. Uh, We are very fortunate to have with us Bob Giles, Robert Giles. He is the Pulitzer Prize-winning editor of the Akron, Ohio Beacon Journal, and he wrote a book uh, remembering the Kent State shootings way back half a century ago in 1970 and why truth matters. Now, Bob Giles uh, was curator of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard for a decade between 2000 and 2011. He was editor for many years, uh, not only in Akron, but at the Times Union and Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, New York, and at the Detroit News. And now he's retired to Traverse City, uh, but he is with us now. Bob Giles, thank you for being our guest. My pleasure, Bill. It's nice to be with you. Now, uh, when truth mattered, uh, the Kent State shootings 50 years later, uh, that is your authoritative account of a young newspaper editor, and you're still young as far as I'm concerned, and his staff painstakingly pursuing the truth of the Kent State shootings on May 4th, 1970, uh, we should have had you two months ago. That would have been the exact uh, half-century anniversary. But uh, better late than never. Here we are uh, near the end of June, and we're lucky to have you. So, Bob Giles, uh, tell us why the Kent State shootings resonate even today. Well, because uh, for several reasons. One is that you know justice was never done. Uh, this is, as the facts have demonstrated, this was a murder. Uh, the students were murdered. The four students in the, were murdered, and the National Guard shot them with malice in mind. And that's sort of the definition of what a murder is. Uh, and after nine years of court cases and grand jury hearings and so on, nobody was ever held accountable. And that's been one of the motivations over the years that has led people to have a commemoration on the Kent State campus every May 4th. Um, and, and there's still some deep wounds about the fact that the National Guard soldiers who did the fatal shooting got, got away with it. They were never identified um, and... Uh, then there were some other uh, characters in play, uh, primarily the, the governor of Ohio, James Rhodes. Jim Rhodes was a popular governor. He was running for uh, the U.S. Senate uh, in a Republican primary the day after May 4th. And he came to campus to show what a tough guy he was in handling these anti-war radicals, and he made some really unfortunate decisions, the primary one of which was the county prosecutor urged him on on the day before, May the 3rd, 
it closed the campus. He said, it's too volatile. Something terrible is going to happen. And Rhodes said, oh, no, we're not going to do that, because if they we, we do that, then people will say, well, they, he let the anti-war radicals win. And so that set in motion uh, a series of events in which the National Guard was ordered to break up any student rallies on the following day at noon on May 4th. And that led to the confrontation, and we still don't know what, who gave, if anybody gave the order to shoot the students, uh, or whether it was simply uh, something that happened. One, one may have shot, and the others followed, and so on. And, and, and the Beacon Journal did some investigating that demonstrated that the guardsmen's claims that their lives were endangered because students were throwing stones and rocks at them. We disproved that the that the, uh, that the guardsmen were surrounded and pressed in by by students. Uh, there was also a serious claim that a sniper had shot at the guardsmen, and we did it. Uh, and the the evidence for that was uh, a bullet hole in a in a metal uh, sculpture uh, right where the shooting took place. And we did a test on, on a separate piece, piece of metal and proved that the, the way that the, the bullet hole was being read was false, and that sort of killed the sniper, um, the sniper theory. And uh, then, you know, over time, uh, we, um, uh, I would say uh, six weeks after the shooting in, in the middle of July, we got a hold of a copy of the of the FBI's uh, summary report of their investigation, and they said the guard was not in danger, had no business shooting the students. The students had the right to protest peacefully as they were uh, under the protection of the, of the First Amendment to our Constitution. Well, let's uh, make it clear to our listeners, this is during the Vietnam War. There were demonstrations on a number of campuses throughout the country, and the National Guard was brought in uh, to Kent State. And, of course, we've just had controversy about that in the past couple of weeks in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder in Minneapolis. Um, and this is what happened. Uh, I, I'm just kind of amazed. Do you think today that if anything like this happened, seriously, uh, we would not have been able to identify who fired the shots? I mean, they, they were not even identified? Uh, they had the names of, well, 29 of the soldiers fired their M1 rifles. You know, these are killer weapons. And uh, they, in, in a 13-second volley, they, they fired 61 times. Uh, so they, they, the officers immediately took their weapons from them and started to do the normal check, but they were going to try to match up uh, the rifling in the in the weapon with the bullet uh, carcass cartridges that they found around the campus. Well, uh, that just didn't work because so many of the bullets were buried in the in the lawns or blew blew apart and they hit something and so on. So they never had a very clear picture where they could line up the spent the lethal bullets uh, with the weapons that, that fired them and therefore identify the young soldiers who pulled the trigger. Uh, do you think that the soldiers were just totally 
you know, naive, inexperienced, unprepared for this. There was some talk that they saw students rushing out of buildings and they thought uh, the National Guard did. They were being rushed by these students when, in fact, all the students were doing was getting out of class. And all of a sudden they opened fire. Well, you had a, you have a campus of 19,000 students, and the number of students who participated in this demonstration, demonstration was against, uh, in reaction to President Nixon's speech about sending troops into Cambodia. And the students, uh, so 1,500 students were gathered. I'd say 300 of them were serious protesters, and the, other, the rest were people... Uh, just observing, uh, interested uh, in in how this demonstration was going to play out. So, uh, and and it's true, many of the students were on their way to lunch or to another class. In fact, two of the four victims, uh, Bill Schroeder and Sandy Shoyer, were in fact far away from uh, the shooting site, and they were on their way to class. Uh, so that all, the other two, uh, Allison Cross and Jeffrey Miller were involved in the, in the protests with those larger group of students who were throwing things and saying nasty words at the guardsmen. Wow. Well, we're out of time. We could talk about this so much more. Maybe we could get you back later to talk about this. But let me ask, did Jim Rhodes win his primary the next day? No, he lost to Bob Taft. <laughs> Taft was a big, big political name in Ohio, and Jim Rhodes lost. Well, and maybe this didn't help him that much either. It didn't. Listen, Bob Giles, you did a great job of helping us remember the significance of uh, May uh, 4th, 1970, half a century ago, four deaths, nine woundings at the Kent State campus. Thank you, Bob Giles. You're welcome, Bill. Great to talk to you. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are fortunate to have with us a genuine candidate for Congress, the U.S. House of Representatives in the 3rd Congressional District, which is in West Michigan, uh, covering Kent County, Calhoun County. Those are the two heavyweights, and maybe there's more. We'll let him uh, Peter Meyer, the candidate, talk about that. Peter Meyer, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for the genuine, and thank you for having me on, Bill. Peter Meyer is running for the Republican nomination in the 3rd Congressional District. Now, let me just clarify for our listeners, this seat is now held by Justin Amash, but Justin Amash has declared he's no longer a Republican. He's an independent uh, right now, unless Peter Meyer can tell us something different, it's unclear to me, and I think everyone, whether Justin Amash plans to run for re-election as an independent or as a uh, libertarian, uh, which is a possibility. But Peter Meyer right now is concentrating on his Republican primary. I believe he's got four opponents. And Peter Meyer, thanks for being our guest and take it away from here. No, I thank you very much, Bill. Like you said, um, you know, with the, the current incumbent in the seat, there's a lot of unknowns, a lot of unpredictability. But right now we're running in the GOP primary. You know, I've been a Republican all my life. I founded our high school Young Republicans 
back in uh, the first or back in uh, George Bush's first term, and excited to really you know have a chance to get out in the community, um, talk with you know a lot of folks, and, and really kind of see the magic of West Michigan and all of the you know fantastic community-led initiatives that you know, frankly I don't want the federal government getting in the way of. I mean, we have a wonderful part uh, slice of heaven here in West Michigan, um, and I'm just excited to to kind of step up to the plate and lead us into the future. You have some military experience in your background, don't you? Yeah, I've been in the Army Reserves for a decade. Um, I actually deployed to Iraq um, during college uh, about a decade ago as an interrogator. I ran some sources uh, and did some counterintelligence work as well. So I kind of have a deep uh, deep background on the intelligence and defense side. Uh, But I also worked in Afghanistan as a humanitarian aid worker uh, doing conflict analysis for the humanitarian aid community Uh, for uh, a couple of years after that as well. So I spent three years between Iraq and Afghanistan, and really that that sort of uh, deep, steeping experience into the failures of our current wars uh, was a huge animating kind of political drive for me because I went from, you know, a gung-ho, you know, yeah, we should invade Iraq as a, you know, naive uh, 15- and 16-year-old to now looking back and just kind of seeing the, the wreckage and the destruction of those wars um, and realizing that, you know, we need to find a more sustainable balance in the world. Uh, we shouldn't be. There's something that I think is just very um, insidious about just the the nature of how we found ourselves in a position where, you know, we, we equate national security with putting our troops in harm's way and never really trying to square that circle. Right. Stateside, what have you been doing the last few years in West Michigan? Yeah, so I was actually working in real estate development um, after after my, my now wife and girlfriend gave me an ultimatum when I was working in Afghanistan and said, uh, you know, I'm not interested in investing if you're just going to be living living in a war zone for the rest of the time we're together. <laughs> um, came home, um, I, I got an MBA, uh, and then I was working on the real estate development side while also, you know, kind of moonlighting, uh, doing some political consulting work and helping other veterans who were interested in getting into politics. I, while I was overseas, while I was in the military, I'd always been very involved in the veterans community. Uh, I helped campaign and pass the post-9-11 GI Bill back in 2008, and most of my time was spent um, advocating on the veteran education side, you know, testifying before congressional subcommittees on various pieces of legislation. Um, but I'd also been doing disaster response work with the veterans community with a group called Team Rubicon that mobilized military veterans to respond to disasters. So that kind of veteran continuum led me um, to a group that was looking to get more veterans into politics on both sides of the aisle. Uh, as a super PAC um, that was trying to reduce political polarization by having, you know, a bipartisan um, group of people who, you know, had at least in the past demonstrated the ability you know, to put the country first uh, and not be leading with their partisan affiliation. So through that, I, I met with John James um, very early on in his uh, first Senate campaign, I think before he'd officially announced, um, and had spent other time kind of discussing and, and getting politically engaged on the campaign side. Um, and then as things began to take a different turn in the district, um, you know, I, I just couldn't stay on the sidelines anymore. You got some good news this week. I believe there was a poll that came out about your Republican primary race. And also, I think you got an endorsement from Right to Life of Michigan. Is that correct? 
That's correct. It's been it's been an exciting week. Uh, we've been uh, conducting polls every now and then just to kind of see where our messaging was back in December. We were down a little bit in February. We we're up a little bit, and then um, in June we were up a lot of it. So it's nothing that we're gonna you know take for granted. Uh, we can't get complacent, but I'm, I'm honestly just really proud of how our team has come together, um, how we've you know gone from just kind of a solo campaign to uh, you know really building out a group of folks who are who are you know excited and motivated to work for the future of West Michigan. You know when coronavirus hit, you know our team kind of sat down and said, you know obviously we're not going to be able to campaign. You know what can we do to help out? Uh, we reached out to some nonprofit groups and said, you know, we know you guys in your traditional areas are going to see an increase in demand, um, and, and we know you're going to do everything you can to address that. Are there places where we might be able to fill in? Um, and that's where we saw an opportunity to help, um, you know, get food to people who were, you know, couldn't leave their house because, you know, doctors recommended they stay home, you know, couldn't afford to have shipped or, or couldn't afford, you know, to have a, a relative go in and pick something up for them. And we ended up delivering over thirty, uh, yeah, over thirty-seven thousand meals to folks throughout West Michigan. Actually, in five congressional districts, all told, from Big Rapids to the Indiana border and Lansing to Lakeshore. You know, uh, to just make sure we could help bridge the gap in this challenging period. So we, you know, we're, we're our campaign, you know, hasn't been about um, you know negative partisanship. It hasn't been about trying to you know take anyone else down. I mean, it's trying to build up West Michigan um, and just kind of telling telling our story. Yeah, less partisanship would be a good thing all the way around these days. Uh, there's too much partisanship. But you've got to win a Republican primary on August 4th, and uh, I think you were at 41% in this poll, and Lynn Affendulis, who is a state representative running against you, is at 17%, and the other three candidates, I think, are down in single digits. Is that correct? There's a pretty... You know, I think we had a four and a half point margin of error, but uh, yeah, those are the numbers. Yeah. Well, uh, going forward, let's say you win the primary. Do you have any inclination at all uh, as to whether Justin Amash is going to run as a libertarian? I I do not. <laughs> I am. Um, we've spent the the one question um, that I am I'm excited to at some point and hopefully by August fifth have a concrete answer to is what exactly is he going to do um, as, as a longtime analyst and, and being used to trying to suss out the motives of kind of opaque, um, you know, groups. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I try to, I feel like a Kremlinologist analyzing every, you know, statement by the polar bureau. You know, I mean, there's only so much you can ultimately do. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, he's going to do what, what he thinks is best. Um, and so we're, we're on the campaign side, we're running, Regardless um, of the outcome, you know, we have uh, I'm, I'm always one to have, you know, kind of contingencies and make sure that whatever plan we have is not something we need to change on the fly. Is the possibility that Amash might run and perhaps siphon votes away from the Republican nominee who is likely to be you or could be you uh, a concern to you because the Democrats uh, don't generally do that well in that district, but I can remember a time, uh, Peter Meyer, when a Democrat, Richard Vanderveen, was elected uh, back in the mid-70s uh, a couple of times, and, and uh, so it can happen. It, it is. Um, you know, one, one of the big complications with trying to make that analysis is what is the impact and breakdown of straight-ticket voting 
you know, what is the turnout in a presidential year? Um, I think there's we, we've seen the challenge of trying to run those kind of multivariate polls before. Um, and I mean, at the end of the day, I think the my my lesson learned is, you know, don't be kind of looking over your shoulder, um, you know, run the best race you can. Uh, run through the tape, and and also, I mean, run the most sincere and authentic campaign you can. I mean, I think our current political moment encourages folks to be um, inauthentic, to be one note, and that that just doesn't get the job done. Right. Well, listen, uh, you're going to have to be running with uh, President Donald Trump, and I, uh, I'm sure you're wondering whether that's going to be an asset or a liability. Uh, But we don't have enough time to talk about that, but there will be time later. So listen, Peter Meyer, thank you so much for being our guest. Good luck to you and your campaign. Sounds like you're working hard, and uh, we'll see what happens on August 4th. Thank you, Peter Meyer. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back next week.